Chapter 13, Lenin and the Proletarian Party of a New Type The most urgent and pressing task when Lenin came out of exile was to build the revolutionary proletarian party. The Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, RSDLP, had been formally established in a congress held in 1898, attended by nine delegates. However, the central committee elected at the congress was very soon arrested. Though the banner of the party had been announced, this congress did not actually succeed in unifying all the groups and building up a single-party organizational structure. Thus, in 1900, this task remained. The plan for building up the party had been worked out in detail while in exile. Lenin felt the key to it was setting up an all-Russian political newspaper. Lenin proposed that the only way of politically and organizationally uniting the scattered Marxist study circles, groups, and organizations was through a political newspaper. This newspaper would be able to link politically all the varied cells throughout Russia by presenting the correct line and immediately fighting all opportunist deviations. At the same, the most difficult task of secretly distributing an illegal paper would by itself create an underground organization trained in facing the repressive Russian secret police. Lenin wanted to first bring this plan into action before the calling of a party congress, because it was also first necessary to defeat the opportunist and revisionist trends that had raised their heads in the movement in the preceding years. Lenin's plan was first discussed with and approved by the leagues of struggle in various Russian cities and at a conference of social democrats, which he arranged to discuss this plan. His principal associates in this plan were Martov and Potrasov members of the central group in St. Petersburg, who had been arrested and sent to Siberia at the same time as him. The plan was to publish the paper from abroad as it was too dangerous to publish it within Russia. Lenin also planned for this purpose to unite with Plekhanov's Emancipation of Labor group, which already existed abroad. The editorial board was to consist of six members, three from the Emancipation group abroad and three from Russia, Lenin, Martov, and Potrasov. After making all the arrangements, the first issue of the paper came out in December 1900. It was called Iskra, meaning spark. Its title page carried the words of the first Russian bourgeois revolutionaries of 1825, quote, the spark will kindle a flame, unquote. Iskra was printed in various countries at various times, Germany, England, and Switzerland. It was never sent directly to Russia, but went by extremely roundabout routes until they reached secret Iskra committees within Russia. The distributors had an extremely difficult task avoiding the secret police, and if Iskra smugglers were caught, they were straightaway exiled to Siberia. Iskra was a major tool for educating the working class with lectures and study circles, often consisting of reading articles from the paper. Iskra agents used every opportunity to distribute the newspaper, as well as secret Iskra leaflets. These were distributed not only in the factories, but also in the streets, in theaters, in army barracks, and through the post. In large cities, they were widely scattered through the streets or from balconies and theaters. In worker localities, they were distributed late at night or early morning by keeping them in a factory courtyards and near water pumps where they would be seen in the morning. After each such operation, which was called sewing, a particular marking would be made on a nearby wall so that a full report could be gotten in the morning as to the impact of the night's work. In small towns and villages, the Iskra pamphlets were brought in peasant carts on market days and pasted on walls. All this was dangerous work as discovery meant immediate arrest and the possibility of banishment to Siberia. The comrades involved in this work slowly started building up into a team of professional revolutionaries on the basis of whom Lenin planned to build the proletarian party. 
As to the structure and composition of the party itself, Lenin believed that it should consist of two parts. A, a close circle of regular cadres of leading party workers, chiefly professional revolutionaries, that is, party workers free from all occupation except party work, and possessing the necessary minimum of theoretical knowledge, political experience, organizational practice, and the art of facing and fighting the Tsarist police, and B, a broad network of local party organizations and a large number of party members enjoying the sympathy and support of hundreds of thousands of working people. As the process of building such a party proceeded through the help of Iskra, Lenin gave direction to this process through his articles and books. Of particular significance were where to begin, what is to be done, and letter to a comrade on organizational questions. In these works, he laid down the ideological and organizational basis of the proletarian party. Besides the organizational questions, a major battle waged by Lenin was the fight against the economists, who wanted to restrict the Social Democratic Party merely to the economic struggle of the workers. They had grown in strength in Russia during Lenin's period in exile, and Lenin realized that economism had to be ideologically defeated before the convening of the party congress. He launched a direct attack on them, particularly through his book, What is to be Done? Lenin exposed how the economist views meant bowing to the spontaneity of the working class movement and neglecting the role of consciousness and the leading role of the party. He showed how this would lead to slavery of the working class to capitalism. While mouthing Marxism, the economists wanted to convert the revolutionary party into a party of social reform. Lenin thus showed how the economists were actually Russian representatives of the opportunist trend of Bernsteinian revisionism. Lenin's book, which was widely distributed in Russia, succeeded in decisively defeating economism. It thus laid down the principles which later became the ideological foundation of the Bolshevik party. The actual birth of the Bolshevik trend within the RSDLP took place at the Second Party Congress, which took place in July through August of 1903. The main debate at the Congress was regarding what should be the nature of the party, and thus who should be given membership to the party. Lenin, who had in mind a tight, effective, professional revolutionary-based party, proposed that all party members should work in one of the party organizations. Martov, on the other hand, had as his model the loosely functioning legal parties which had become common in the Second International at the time. He thus proposed loose criteria for membership, which would allow anyone who accepted the party program and supported the party financially to be eligible for party membership. He thus was ready to give party membership to any party sympathizer. In the vote on this point, the majority was with Martov. However, later when some opportunist sections walked out of the Congress, the majority came over to Lenin's side. This was reflected in the elections to the Central Committee and Editorial Board of Iskra, which went according to Lenin's proposals. The differences between the two groups, however, remained strong and continued even after the Congress. From that time, Lenin's followers, who received the majority of the votes in the elections at the Congress, have been called Bolsheviks, which means majority in the Russian language. Lenin's opponents, who received the minority of the votes, had been called Mensheviks, which means minority in the Russian language. Immediately after the Congress, the Mensheviks started manipulations and splitting activities. This created a lot of confusion. In order to clear the confusion, Lenin, in May 1904, published his famous book One Step Forward, Two Steps Back. It gave a detailed analysis of the intra-party struggle both during and after the Congress, and on that basis explained the proletarian party's main organizational principles, which later came to form the organizational foundations of the Bolshevik party. 
The circulation of this book brought the majority of the local organizations of the party to the side of the Bolsheviks. However, the central bodies, the party organ and the central committee, went into the hands of the Mensheviks, who were determined to defeat the decisions of the Congress. The Bolsheviks were thus forced to form their own committee and start their own organ. Both groups also started making separate preparations for organizing their own Congress and conference. These were held in 1905. The split in the party was complete. The foundations, however, had been laid for the building of the true revolutionary party, the proletarian party of a new type. Chapter 14, The Russian Bourgeois Revolution of 1905, Development of Proletarian Tactics. The period of the split in the RSDLP came at the beginning of a period of major changes in the world situation. The long 35-year gap of peace in Europe between the main capitalist countries was broken with a series of wars. The age of imperialism had dawned and the new imperialist powers started fighting to capture and expand markets. They entered into a number of regional wars. An important war among these was the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05. through These regional wars were only a way by which the imperialist powers were preparing themselves for the devastating World War I of 1914-18 through for the redivision of the world. This same period was also a period of a new upsurge of revolutions. The main source of these revolutions was, however, now not Europe, but Asia. The first of these revolutions was the Russian bourgeois revolution of 1905, which was followed by the Turkish, the Persian, and the Chinese bourgeois revolutions. The most important of these revolutions, from the point of the role of the proletariat and the development of Marxist revolutionary tactics, was the 1905 Russian Revolution. Its starting point was the Russo-Japanese War. The Russo-Japanese War, which started on 8th February 1904, ended in defeat for the Tsar and a humiliating peace treaty on August 23, 1905. The Bolsheviks adopted a clear revolutionary standpoint to the war opposed to their own government, and opposed to any false notions of nationalism or patriotism. Their perspective was that the defeat of the Tsar would be useful, as it would weaken Tsardom and strengthen the revolution. This is actually what happened. The economic crisis of 1900-1903 through 1903 had already aggravated the hardships of the toiling masses. The war further intensified this suffering. As the war continued and the Russian armed forces faced defeat after defeat, the people's hatred for the Tsar increased. They reacted with the Great Revolution of 1905. The historic movement started with a big Bolshevik-led strike of the oil workers of Baku in December 1904. This was the, quote, signal, unquote, for a wave of strikes and revolutionary actions throughout Russia. In particular, the revolutionary storm broke with the indiscriminate firing upon and massacre of a demonstration of unarmed workers on January 22, 1905, in St. Petersburg. The Tsar's attempt to crush the workers in blood only inspired a still fiercer response from the masses. The whole of 1905 was a period of a rising wave of militant political strikes by workers, seizure of land and landlords' grain by peasants, and even a revolt by the Russian Navy sailors of the battleship Potemkin. Twice the Tsar, in a bid to divert the struggle, offered first a, quote, consultative, unquote, and then a, quote, legislative, unquote, Duma. Duma is the Russian parliament. The Bolsheviks rejected both Dumas, whereas the Mensheviks decided to participate. The high tide of the revolution was between October and December 1905. During this period, the proletariat, for the first time in world history, set up the Soviets of workers' deputies, which were assemblies of delegates from all mills and factories. 
These were the embryo of revolutionary power and became the model for the Soviet power setup after the Socialist Revolution in 1917. Starting with an all-Russia political strike in October, the revolutionary struggles went on rising until the Bolshevik-led armed uprisings in December in Moscow and various other cities and nationalities throughout the country were brutally crushed after which the tide of the revolution started to recede. The revolution was, however, not yet crushed and the workers and revolutionary peasants retreated slowly, putting up a fight. Over a million workers took part in strikes in 1906 and 740,000 in 1907. The peasant movement embraced about half of the districts of Tsarist Russia in the first half of 1906 and about one-fifth in the second half of the year. The crest of the revolution had, however, passed. On June 3, 1907, the Tsar effected a coup, dissolved the Duma he had created, and withdrew even the limited rights he had been forced to grant during the revolution. A period of intense repression under the Tsarist Prime Minister, Stolyapin, called the Stolyapin Reaction, set in. It was to last until the next wave of strikes and political struggles in 1912. Though the 1905 revolution was defeated, it shook the very foundation of Tsarist rule. It also, in the short space of three years, gave the working class and peasantry a rich political education. It was also the period when the Bolsheviks proved in practice the basic correctness of their revolutionary understanding regarding the strategy and tactics of the proletariat. It was in the course of this revolution that the Bolshevik understanding regarding the friends and enemies of the revolution and the forms of struggle and forms of organization was firmly established. The Bolsheviks and Mensheviks had an opposite understanding of all the above questions. The Menshevik understanding was the reformist and legalist understanding that had by then grown common in many parties of the Second International. It was based on the understanding that the Russian Revolution, being a bourgeois revolution, had to be led by the liberal bourgeoisie, and therefore the proletariat should not take any steps that would frighten the bourgeoisie and drive it into the arms of the Tsar. The Bolshevik understanding, on the other hand, was the revolutionary understanding that the proletariat could not rely on the bourgeoisie to lead the revolution and would have to itself take up leadership of the revolution. It was on this revolutionary basis that the Bolsheviks developed their understanding of all other important strategic and tactical questions of the revolution. Thus, the Bolsheviks called for the extension of the revolution and the overthrow of the Tsar through armed uprising. The Mensheviks tried to control the revolution within a peaceful framework and attempted to reform and improve Tsardom. The Bolsheviks pushed for the leadership of the working class, the isolation of the liberal bourgeoisie, and a firm alliance with the peasantry. The Mensheviks accepted an alliance with and leadership of the liberal bourgeoisie and did not consider the peasantry as a revolutionary class with which to be allied. The Bolsheviks were ready for participation in a provisional revolutionary government to be formed on the basis of a successful people's uprising and called for the boycott of the Duma offered by the Tsar. The Mensheviks were ready to participate in the Duma and proposed to make it the center of the quote, revolutionary forces, unquote, of the country. The Menshevik understanding was not an isolated example of a reformist trend. In fact, the Menshevik understanding was fully representative of the understanding of the main leading parties of the Second International at that time. Their stand was basically supported by the leaders of the International. Thus, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were not only fighting the reformism of the Mensheviks, but also the reformist understanding that then dominated the so-called Marxist parties of the International. Lenin's formulations were, however, a continuation and development of the revolutionary understanding of Marx and Engels. 
It was a further development of the Marxist revolutionary tactics applied in the new conditions brought about by the growth of capitalism into a new stage, imperialism. Lenin published these tactics in his various writings during the course of the revolution, and particularly in his book, Two Tactics of Social Democracy in the Democratic Revolution. This book, written in July 1905, after the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks held separated congresses, brought about the essential differences in the strategy and tactics proposed by the two groups. The fundamental tactical principles presented by Lenin in this and other works were 1. The main tactical principle running through all Lenin's writings is that the proletariat can and must be the leader of the bourgeois democratic revolution. In order to do this, two conditions were necessary. Firstly, it was necessary for the proletariat to have an ally who was interested in a decisive victory over Tsardom and who might be disposed to accept the leadership of the proletariat. Lenin considered the peasantry to be such an ally. Secondly, it was necessary that the class that was fighting the proletariat for the leadership of the revolution and striving to become its sole leader would be forced out of the arena of leadership and isolated. Lenin considered the liberal bourgeoisie to be such a class. Thus, the essence of Lenin's main tactical principle of the leadership of the proletariat meant the policy of alliance with the peasantry and at the same time the policy of isolation of the liberal bourgeoisie. 2. In regards to the forms of struggle and forms of organization, Lenin considered that the most effective means of overthrowing Tsardom and achieving a democratic republic was a victorious armed uprising of the people. In order to bring this about, Lenin called for mass political strikes and the arming of the workers. He also called for achieving the eight-hour working day and other immediate demands of the working class in a revolutionary way by disregarding the authorities and the law. Similarly, he called for the formation of revolutionary peasant committees to bring about changes like seizure of land in a revolutionary way. These tactics of disregarding the authorities paralyzed the Tsar's state machinery and released the initiative of the masses. It led to the formation of revolutionary strike committees in the towns and revolutionary peasant committees in the countryside, which later developed into the Soviets of Workers' Deputies and the Soviets of Peasant Deputies. 3. Lenin further held that the revolution should not stop after the victory of the bourgeois revolution and the achievement of a democratic republic. He proposed that it was the duty of the revolutionary party to do everything possible to make the bourgeois democratic revolution continue into the socialist revolution. He thus gave concrete form to Marx's concept of uninterrupted revolution. These tactical principles became the basis for the Bolshevik practice during the following period. It finally led to the victory of the proletariat in the 1917 October Revolution and the establishment of the first workers' state. Chapter 15, World War I, Opportunism versus Revolutionary Tactics The dawn of imperialism from the turn of the century brought with it the wars by the imperialist powers for the capture of colonies. An example was the Russo-Japanese War mentioned in the previous chapter. This war took place because both Russia and Japan wanted control over Manchuria in northern China and Korea. Similar wars for capturing or recapturing colonies started breaking out in various parts of the world. Thus, it became of crucial importance for the international proletarian movement to adopt the correct revolutionary position on the questions of colonialism and war. This therefore came up before the Congress of the Second International. However, opportunism by then had spread quite extensively within the parties of the Second International. Many leading sections of the parties in the imperialist countries had in fact started taking the standpoint of the bourgeoisie on many of the crucial political questions. 
This was seen very clearly at the 1907 Congress of the Second International, where the questions of colonialism and war were first taken up. On the question of colonialism, the leading body of the Congress, the Congress Commission, adopted a resolution on colonial policy and placed it before the general body for approval. This resolution, while criticizing the bourgeoisie's colonial policy in name, it did not reject totally the principle of capturing colonies. It in fact argued that under a socialist regime, it could be in the, quote, interests of civilization, unquote, to capture colonies. Such an openly imperialist position of these so-called Marxists was strongly opposed by the revolutionaries in the general body, and the resolution was finally defeated, but only by a small margin of 127 votes to 108. Similar opportunism of the leadership was seen in the case of the stand on the question of war. Bebel, a known leader and close follower and associate of Marx and Engels, prepared the resolution. The resolution, however, was left vague without any specific direction or course of action to be taken by the members in the event of war. This again was opposed strongly by the revolutionaries, particularly Rosa Luxemburg of Germany and Lenin. They then proposed an amendment which gave a clear-cut direction to the members of the International to fight to prevent war, to fight to end the war quickly in case it started, and to make full use of the economic and political crisis in the case of war to arouse the people and bring about revolution. This was a continuation of the revolutionary proletarian position on war that Marx had already clearly laid down. Since the opportunists could not openly oppose this understanding, this resolution was passed by the Congress. As the war danger grew greater, the 1910 and 1912 Congresses of the International again discussed and adopted resolutions regarding war. They decided that all socialists in Parliament should vote against war credits. They also repeated in their resolutions the wording of the amendment proposed in 1907 by Luxembourg and Lenin. However, the hold of opportunism over the Second International was so great that most of the leaders who passed these resolutions had absolutely no intention of standing by these decisions. This was seen when World War I actually broke out in July through August of 1914. The German Social Democratic Party, which was the undoubted leader of the Second International, led the way. The trade union bureaucrats, instead of trying to rouse the workers against the war and for revolution, immediately entered into a no-strike agreement with the employers. In the party caucus fraction meeting that was held before the parliamentary vote on war credits, a large majority voted in support of the war. Only a handful of revolutionaries led by Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg opposed. Kautsky, who was at that time the main ideological leader of the Second International, voted to abstain. Thus, on August 4, 1914, the German Social Democratic Party threw aside all the previous Congress resolutions and voted unanimously in Parliament to support the imperialist war. For the revolutionary proletariat, the Second International ceased to exist from that date. The German party was immediately followed by the majority of socialists in France, Britain, Belgium, and other countries. The Second International broke into separate social chauvinist parties warring against each other. The Bolsheviks were almost the only party to stand by the anti-war resolutions. In the context of the Second International, leaders falling totally into opportunism, it was left to Lenin and the Bolsheviks to uphold and implement the correct Marxist position regarding the World War. Lenin immediately published writings presenting this correct understanding. The Central Committee of the RSDLPB gave a call to, quote, turn the imperialist war into a civil war, unquote, and to build a new third international in the place of the second international. Lenin started the process of building the third international by uniting all the leftist anti-war forces. Though these forces started holding conferences from 1915 onwards, much confusion continued. 
Lenin had to take up the task of clearing this confusion and establish among these elements the correct revolutionary position on the principles of socialism in relation to war, as well as the tasks of the revolutionary social democrats at the international level and in Russia. Lenin did this through his various writings propagated both within Russia and internationally. The principles and tasks Lenin outlined can be presented in the following manner. Firstly, socialists are not pacifists who are opponents of all war. Socialists aim at establishing socialism and communism, which by eliminating all exploitation will eliminate the very possibility of war. However, in the fight to achieve the socialist system, there will always be the possibility of wars which are necessary and are of revolutionary significance. Secondly, while deciding the attitude to be adopted towards a particular war, the main issue for socialists is this. What is the war being waged for, and what classes staged and directed it? Thus, Lenin pointed out that during the period of the bourgeois democratic revolution, Marx had supported the wars waged by the bourgeoisie, which were against feudalism and reactionary kings. Because these wars were aimed at abolishing feudalism and establishing or strengthening capitalism, they were progressive or just wars. Adopting similar criteria, Lenin points out that in the era of imperialism and proletarian revolution, socialists will support all such wars that advance the world socialist revolution. According to such an understanding, Lenin gave examples of the types of wars that may be called just or progressive wars. 1. National wars waged by a colonial or semi-colonial country against its imperialist exploiter. 2. Civil wars waged by the proletariat and other oppressed classes against their feudal or capitalist ruling classes. 3. Socialist wars for the defense of the socialist fatherland. Thirdly, Lenin pointed out that on the basis of the above understanding there was nothing just or progressive about the World War I. He compared the imperialist war to a war between a slaveholder who owns 100 slaves and a slaveholder who owns 200 slaves for a more, quote, just, unquote, redistribution of slaves. The essential purpose of the World War I was for redistribution of the colonial slaves. Thus there could not be anything progressive or defensive or just about the war. It was an unjust, reactionary war. The only stand towards it could be the call to convert the imperialist war into a civil war. The only use of such a war was to take advantage of it to make a revolution. In order to do this, Lenin pointed out that it was advantageous that one's own country is defeated in the war. Defeat would weaken the ruling class and facilitate the victory of revolution. Thus, any socialist revolutionary must work for the defeat of his own government in the war. Finally, Lenin pointed out that it was the duty of socialists to participate in the movement for peace. Nevertheless, while participating in the movement for peace, it is their duty to point out that no real and lasting peace is possible without a revolutionary movement. In fact, whoever wants a just and democratic peace must stand for civil war against the governments and the bourgeoisie. Though these principles and tactics were propagated among all the parties of the Second International, the only ones to implement them in practice were the Bolsheviks. It was this approach to the war that helped them to make use of the revolutionary crisis situation created by the war, and within three years achieved the victory of the Great October Socialist Revolution of 1917. Chapter 16, Lenin's Analysis of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism Marx's analysis of the laws of motion of capitalism belongs to the stage of free competitive capitalism, where a large number of capitalist producers compete in the market. He analyzed to some extent the process of the centralization of capital. However, he did not live long enough to see the start of a new stage of capitalism, the stage of imperialism. This happened at the start of the 20th century and it was left to Lenin to analyze this process. 
1897 through 98, Lenin made some initial analysis of the development of the capitalist world market, but did not analyze the subject of imperialism in full. However, with the start of the World War I, a war caused by imperialism, it was necessary to do a full analysis of imperialism to understand the economic basis of the war and the political consequences for the proletariat. This question became all the more urgent in 1915, when the opportunist and revisionist leader of the Second International, Karl Kautsky, wrote a book on imperialism where he argued that the world economic system was moving towards, quote, ultra-imperialism, unquote, where there would be stability and no risk of war. His argument was similar to some people who analyze globalization today and argue that, because of the growth of multinational groups and corporations, and the spread of their capital to all countries, these multinationals will be opposed to war and there is therefore no danger of a world war. This theory presented during World War I gave a false picture of imperialism. Since such a false theory was presented by Kautsky, who was recognized at the time as the main theoretician of Marxism, it was absolutely necessary to oppose this theory and present the correct understanding. It was necessary to clear the confusion created by the second internationalists and give the correct analysis and present the correct tactics before the international working class movement. In order to do this, Lenin, in 1916, did extensive research and produced his famous work, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Besides this main work, he also wrote many other articles linking this basic economic analysis to the tactics of the proletariat. In the first place, Lenin tried to clear the confusion created by Kautsky and the other opportunists as to what imperialism is. In order to answer this, he pointed out that imperialism is a specific historical stage of capitalism. Imperialism's specific character is threefold. 1. Monopoly capitalism. 2. Parasitic or decaying capitalism. 3. Morbid capitalism or capitalism on its deathbed. The replacement of free competition by monopoly is the fundamental economic feature, the essence of imperialism. Monopoly capitalism manifests itself in five principal forms. 1. Cartels, syndicates, and trusts. The concentration of production has reached a degree which gives rise to these monopolistic associations of capitalists who join together to crush other competitors. They fix prices, allot production among themselves, and make other arrangements and agreements to prevent others from entering and succeeding in the market. They play a decisive role in economic life. Two, the monopolistic position of the big banks and the creation of finance capital through the merger of monopoly industrial capital and bank capital. During Lenin's time, this had already reached the level where three, four, or five giant banks manipulated the whole economic life in the main industrialized countries. Three, the export of capital, which gains particular importance. This feature, which is different from the export of commodities under non-monopoly capitalism, is closely linked to the economic and political partition of the world. Four, the economic partition of the world by the international cartels. At Lenin's time, there were already over 100 such international cartels, which commanded the entire world market and divided it among themselves in a, quote, friendly, unquote, manner. Of course, this, quote, friendliness, unquote, would only be temporary and would last until war took place for a redivision of markets. Five, the territorial, political partition of the world or colonies among the biggest capitalist powers. This process of colonization of all the backward countries of the world was basically completed at the time of the dawn of imperialism. Any further colonies could only be taken through redivision of the world through war. On the basis of the above features, Lenin defines imperialism in the following way. Quote, imperialism is capitalism in that stage of development in which the dominance of monopolies and finance capital has established itself. 
in which the export of capital has acquired pronounced importance, in which the division of the world among the international trusts has begun, in which the division of all territories of the globe among the biggest capitalist powers has been completed." Unquote. The fact that imperialism is parasitic or decaying capitalism is manifested first of all in the tendency to decay, which is characteristic of every monopoly under the system of private ownership of the means of production. As compared to the rapid expansion under free competition, there is a tendency for production as a whole to decline under a monopoly. Technological progress is discouraged and new inventions and patents are deliberately suppressed. Secondly, the decay of capitalism is manifested in the creation of a huge stratum of rentiers, capitalists who live without working but merely on the basis of the interest or dividend they earn on their investments. Thirdly, export of capital as parasitism, raised to a high pitch as it means the open exploitation of the cheap labor of the backward countries. Fourthly, finance capital strives for domination, not freedom. Political reaction all along the line is a characteristic feature of imperialism. Corruption, bribery on a huge scale, and all kinds of fraud become common. Fifthly, the exploitation of oppressed nations, and especially the exploitation of colonies by a handful of quote, great unquote powers increasingly transforms the imperialist world into a parasite on the bodies of hundreds of millions in the backward nations. It reaches the stage where a privileged upper stratum of the proletariat in the imperialist countries also lives partly at the expense of hundreds of millions in the colonies. Imperialism is moribund capitalism because it is capitalism in transition to socialism. Monopoly which grows out of capitalism is already dying capitalism, the beginning of its transition to socialism. The tremendous socialization of labor by imperialism produces the same result. The basic contradiction of capitalism between the social character of production and the private character of ownership only gets further intensified under imperialism. Thus, Lenin says, quote, imperialism is the eve of the social revolution of the proletariat, unquote. Chapter 17, The Great October Socialist Revolution. As mentioned in Chapter 14, the period after the defeat of the 1905 revolution was a period of extreme repression and reaction under the leadership of the Tsar's Prime Minister, Stolypin. The working class was made the main target of attack. Wages were reduced by 10 to 15 percent, and the working day was increased by 10 to 12 hours. Blacklists of worker activists were drawn up and they were not given jobs. Systems of fines on workers were introduced. Any attempt to organize was met with savage attacks by the police and gundas organized by the Tsar's agents. In such a situation, many intellectuals and petite bourgeois elements started retreating, and some even joined the camp of the enemy. In order to face this new situation, the Bolsheviks changed from offensive tactics, like the general strikes and armed uprisings used during the period of the 1905 revolution, to defensive tactics. Defensive tactics meant the tactics of gathering forces, cadres withdrawing underground, and carrying on the work of the party from underground and combining illegal work with work in illegal working class organizations. Open revolutionary struggle against Tsardom was replaced by roundabout methods of struggle. The surviving legal organizations served as a cover for the underground organizations of the party and as a means of maintaining connections with the masses. The Bolsheviks made use of the platform of the state Duma to expose the policy of the Tsar's government to expose the liberal parties, and to win the support of the peasants for the proletariat. The preservation of the illegal party organization enabled the party to pursue a correct line and to gather together forces in preparation for a new rise in the tide of the revolution. In implementing these tactics, the Bolsheviks had to wage struggle against two deviations within the movement, the liquidators and the Otsevists, 
or Rakalis. The liquidators, who were Mensheviks, wanted to close down the illegal party structure and set up a legal, quote, labor, unquote, party with the consent of the government. The Rakalis, who were from among the Bolsheviks, wanted to recall all the Bolshevik members of the Duma and also withdraw from the trade unions and all other legal forms of organization. They wanted only the illegal form of organization. The result of both sets of tactics would have been to prevent the party from gathering the forces for a new advance of the revolution. Rejecting both deviations, the Bolsheviks used the correct tactics of combining both legal and illegal methods and were able to gain a strong presence in many workers' organizations and also went over a number of Menshevik worker organizations. This strengthened the party and prepared it for the next upswing in the revolutionary movement, which started from 1912. The Bolsheviks held a separate party conference in January 1912 and constituted themselves as a separate party, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, or Bolsheviks, RSDLP. At this conference, they assessed the rise in the revolutionary movement, which was seen from the rise in the number of strikers in 1911. At this conference and at later meetings of the Central Committee, new tactics were decided upon according to the new situation. This involved extending and intensifying the struggles of the workers. An important aspect of the tactics during this period was the starting of the daily newspaper Pravda, or Truth, which helped to strengthen the Bolshevik organizations and spread their influence among the masses. Earlier, the Bolsheviks had a weekly paper, which was meant for advanced workers. Pravda, however, was a daily mass political newspaper aimed at reaching out to the broadest sections of the workers. Started on May 5, 1912, it lasted for two and a half years. During this period, it faced numerous problems and heavy fines from the government censors. It was suppressed eight times but reappeared again each time under a slightly changed name. It had an average circulation of 40,000 copies. Pravda was supported by a large number of advanced workers, 5,600 workers groups collected for the Bolshevik press. Through Pravda, Bolshevik influence spread not only among the workers but also among the peasants. In fact, during the period of the rise of the revolutionary movement, 1912-14, through 14, the solid foundation was laid for a mass Bolshevik party. As Stalin said, quote, The Pravda of 1912 was the laying of the cornerstone of the victory of Bolshevism in 1917, unquote. With the outbreak of war in 1914, the revolutionary situation further ripened. The Bolsheviks did extensive propaganda among the workers against the war and for the overthrow of Tsardom. Units and cells were also formed in the army and the navy, at the front and in the rear, and leaflets were distributed calling for a fight against the war. At the front, after the party's intensive agitation for friendship and brotherhood between the warring army soldiers, there were increasing instances of refusal of the army units to take the offensive in 1915 and 1916. The bourgeoisie and landlords were making fortunes out of the war, but the workers and peasants were suffering increasing hardships. Millions had died directly of wounds or due to epidemics caused by war conditions. In January and February 1917, the situation became particularly acute. Hatred and anger against the Tsarist government spread. Even the Russian imperialist bourgeoisie were wary of the Tsar, whose advisors were working for a separate peace with Germany. They too, with the backing of the British and French governments, planned to replace the Tsar through a palace coup. However, the people acted first. From January 1917, a strong revolutionary strike movement started in Moscow, Petrograd, Baku, and other industrial centers. The Bolsheviks organized big street demonstrations in favor of a general strike. As the strike movement gained momentum, on March 8th, International Working Women's Day, the working women of Petrograd were called out by the Bolsheviks to demonstrate against starvation, war, and Tsardom. 
The male workers supported the working women with strikes, and by March 11th, the strikes and demonstrations had taken on the character of an armed uprising. The Bureau of the Central Committee on March 11th issued a call for continuation of the armed uprising to overthrow the Tsar and establish a provisional revolutionary government. On March 12th, 60,000 soldiers came over to the side of the revolution, fought the police, and helped the workers overthrow the Tsar. As the news spread, workers and soldiers everywhere began to depose the Tsarist officials. The February bourgeois democratic revolution had won. It is called February Revolution because the Russian calendar at that time was 13 days behind the calendar in other parts of the world, and the date of the victory of the revolution was February 27th, according to the Russian calendar. As soon as Tsardom was overthrown, on the initiative of the Bolsheviks, there arose Soviets of workers and soldiers' deputies. However, while the Bolsheviks were directly leading the struggle of the masses in the streets, the comprising parties, the Mensheviks and Socialist Revolutionaries, a petite bourgeois party which was a continuation of the earlier Narodniks, seized the seats in the Soviets, building up a majority there. Thus they headed the Soviets in Petrograd, Moscow, and a number of other cities. Meanwhile, the liberal bourgeois members of the Duma did a backdoor deal with the Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries and formed a provisional government. The result was the formation of two bodies representing two dictatorships, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, represented by the provisional government, and the dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry, represented by the Soviets of workers and Soviet's deputies. Lenin called this dual power. Immediately after the bourgeois revolution, Lenin, while still in Switzerland, wrote his famous letters from afar, where he analyzed this dual power. He showed how the Soviets were the embryo of the workers' government, which had initiative and won victory in the second stage of the revolution, the socialist revolution. Their allies in this were the broad semi-proletarian and small peasant masses and the proletariat of all countries. On April 16, 1917, Lenin arrived in Petrograd after a long period of exile, and the very next day presented his famous April thesis before a meeting of Bolsheviks. He called for opposing the provisional government, working for a Bolshevik majority in the Soviets, and transferring state power to the Soviets. He presented the program for ensuring peace, land, and bread. Lastly, he called for a new party congress with a new party name, the Communist Party, and for building a new international, the Third International. The Mensheviks immediately attacked Lenin's thesis and warned that, quote, the revolution is in danger, unquote. However, within three weeks, the first openly held All-Russia Conference, the seventh conference of the Bolshevik Party, approved Lenin's report based on the same thesis. It declared the slogan, quote, all power to the Soviets, unquote. It also approved a very important resolution moved by Stalin, declaring the rights of nations to self-determination, including secession. In the following months, the Bolsheviks worked energetically according to the conference line, convincing the masses of workers, soldiers, and peasants of the correctness of their position. The Sixth Party Congress was also held in August 1917 after a gap of 10 years. Due to the danger of attack from the provisional government, the Congress had to be held in secret in Petrograd, without the presence of Lenin. Stalin presented the main political reports, which called for the preparation for armed uprising. The Congress also adopted new party rules, which provided that all party organizations should be built on the principles of democratic centralism. It also admitted the group led by Trotsky into the party. Soon after the Congress, the commander-in-chief of the Russian army, General Kornilov, organized a revolt of the army in order to crush the Bolsheviks and the Soviets. However, the soldiers of many divisions were convinced by the Bolsheviks not to obey orders and the revolt failed. After the failure of this revolt, the masses realized that the Bolsheviks and the Soviets were the only guarantee for achieving peace, land, and bread, which were their urgent demands. 
Rapid Bolshevization of the Soviets took place, and with the tide of the revolution rising, the party started preparing for armed uprising. In this period, Lenin, for security reasons, was forced to stay in Finland, away from the main arena of battle. During this period, he completed his book, The State and Revolution, which defended and developed the teachings of Marx and Engels on the question of the state. While particularly exposing the distortions on this question by opportunists like Kautsky, Lenin's work had a tremendous theoretical and practical significance at the international level at that time. This was because, as Lenin saw clearly, the Russian February bourgeois revolution was a link in a chain of socialist proletarian revolutions being caused by World War I. The question of the relationship between the proletarian revolution and the state was no longer merely a theoretical question. Because of the revolutionary situation created by the war, it was now a question of immediate practical importance, and it was necessary for the international proletarian movement and the masses to be educated about the correct understanding. As the revolutionary tide rose, Lenin again landed at Petrograd on October 20, 1917. Within three days of his arrival, an historic Central Committee meeting decided to launch the armed uprising within a few days. Immediately, representatives were sent to all parts of the country and particularly to the army units. On becoming aware of the plan for the uprising, the provisional government started an attack on the Bolsheviks on November 6, 1917, the eve of the Second All-Russia Congress of Soviets. The Red Guards and revolutionary units of the army retaliated, and by November 7, 1917, state power had passed into the hands of the Soviets. Immediately the next day, the Congress of the Soviets passed the Decree on Peace and the Decree on Land. It formed the first Soviet government, the Council of People's Commissars, of which Lenin was elected the first chairman. The Great October Socialist Revolution had established the dictatorship of the proletariat. It was, however, a long battle before workers' power was consolidated. Firstly, the war with Germany had to be ended. This was finally done by signing the Brest-Litovsk Treaty in February 1918. This too, however, did not bring a lasting peace. As soon as World War I ended, the victorious imperialist powers of Britain, France, Japan, and America started direct and indirect intervention and aid to the old ruling classes of Russia to wage a civil war against the Soviet state. This civil war lasted until the end of 1920. The Soviet state emerged victorious, but at the end of the war, the economy was in ruins. Chapter 18, The Formation of the Third International The end of World War I was a period of revolutionary upsurge throughout the world. The successes of the October Revolution had an impact in numerous countries, even where Marxism had little or no influence. Europe, the main battlefield of the war, was in the deepest revolutionary crisis. The war had resulted in the overthrow of four emperors and the breakup of their four great empires, the Russian, German, Austro-Hungarian, Habsburg, and Turkish, Ottoman. The state structures were in shambles and the masses were in the mood for revolt. The mass protests started even before the completion of the war. In January 1918, a wave of mass political strikes and anti-war demonstrations swept through Central Europe. This was followed by revolts in the armed forces of various countries. There was also a national upsurge which led to the formation of many new states after the breakup of the old empires. In Germany and Hungary, however, the crisis led to revolution. In November 1918, German sailors mutinied and this immediately launched a wave of revolt through Germany, resulting in the overthrow of the emperor and the establishment of a republic under the leadership of the Social Democratic Party. Soviets were immediately established in Berlin and other cities. These were, however, crushed in January 1919 after two weeks of street fighting against the reactionary military forces, which had been reorganized by the Social Democratic government. 
Later, a Soviet republic was formed in Bavaria, a province of Germany, in April 1919, but this too was crushed. In Hungary, the communists led a coalition with the Social Democrats and took control of the government in March 1919. They were, however, thrown out within five months by military pressure from Allied governments. The struggles of the workers continued for at least four more years, but both these revolutions finally ended in failure. Nevertheless, the rising tide of revolution and the success of the revolution in Russia led to the formation of communist parties in many countries. A real basis now existed for a union of the communist parties for the formation of the Third Communist International. As mentioned earlier, Lenin and the Bolsheviks had given the call for the formation of the Third International in 1914. Now they took the initiative for actually setting it up. In January 1919, Lenin addressed an open letter to the workers of Europe and America, urging them to found the Third International. Soon after, invitations for an international congress were sent out. In March 1919, the first Congress of the Communist Parties of various countries, held in Moscow, founded the Communist International. The Congress set up an executive committee of the Third Communist International. Just a month after the first Congress, Lenin explained the historical significance of the Third International in the following way. Quote, the first international laid the foundation of the proletarian international struggle for socialism. The second international marked a period in which the soil was prepared for the broad mass spread of the movement in a number of countries. The Third International has gathered the fruits of the work of the Second International, discarded its opportunist, social chauvinist, bourgeois, and petite bourgeois dross, and has begun to implement the dictatorship of the proletariat, unquote. He thus pointed out that the most significant aspect of the Third International was that it now represented the proletariat that had succeeded in seizing state power and had begun to establish socialism. After intense preparatory work, the Second Congress of the Communist International held in July 1920 was a major success with a wide representation from 41 countries. Lenin made major contributions to Marxist theory in connection with this Congress. He prepared what he intended as a handbook of the Communist Party strategy and tactics, which was distributed among the delegates of the Congress. It was called Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder, and concentrated on correcting the quote, leftist unquote errors then prevalent in many parties, which had joined the International. Lenin also prepared the thesis on the national and colonial question adopted at the Congress. It was a landmark document which laid the Marxist-Leninist theoretical foundations for understanding and leading the national liberation struggles, gathering momentum in all colonies and semi-colonies at the time. In addition, Lenin outlined the basic tasks of the Communist International and the thesis on the agrarian question adopted at this Congress. The Congress also adopted thesis on the role of the Communist Party in the proletarian revolution, on the trade union movement, on communist parties in parliament, and the statutes and conditions of admission to the Communist International. In statutes, the common turn, Communist International, clearly declared that it, quote, breaks once and for all with the traditions of the Second International, for whom only white-skinned people existed, unquote. Besides theoretical formulations, the International, through its executive committee, started playing a prominent role in guiding the parties and movements in its various member countries. In particular, it tried to make the utmost of the post-war revolutionary situation in the capitalist countries, which continued until 1923. However, due primarily to the betrayal of the Second International Social Democrats, and also the ideological and organizational weaknesses of the communist parties in these countries, revolution could not be successfully completed in any other capitalist country. The Comintern, however, played an important role in establishing, developing, and guiding the newly formed communist parties in colonies and semi-colonies. During the 1920s, as national liberation movements in these countries advanced rapidly, 
the Comintern attempted to guide and train the Communist parties to provide the leadership to these movements. It was the first time that Marxism was building a base among the people of the backward countries of the world. Chapter 19, The National and Colonial Question The earliest national movements arose in Western Europe. These national movements were mainly led by the bourgeoisie in their fight against feudalism. The main aim of these national movements was to unite into one nation and state a large territory, which was under the rule of numerous feudal lords. This was necessary in order for the bourgeoisie to obtain a single large market and avoid the harassment and domination of the various feudal lords. Thus, the bourgeois revolution against feudalism and the national movement to establish a single nation-state often combined into one. The national movement was not normally a struggle for independence from oppression by another nation. In the whole of Western Europe, the only place where a national movement for independence took place was when Ireland fought to free itself from Britain. Marx and Engels lived in this period when the later national liberation struggles were yet to break out in a major way. They thus did not devote much attention to developing Marx's theory on the national question. Marx, however, formulated the basic stand in relation to the Irish question by calling on the English proletariat to support the national struggle of the Irish people and oppose its national oppression. The next phase of national movements came in Eastern Europe, with the spread of capitalism and the weakening of the Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires. National movements and organizations started growing in the whole of East Europe, including in Russia. It was necessary for the international proletarian movement and the RSDLP to have a proper understanding and stand on the question. During this period, Stalin, in 1913, made the first systematic Marxist presentation on the national question. Stalin himself was a Georgian, a member of an oppressed nationality in Russia, where a national movement was rapidly developing. In Georgia, it was therefore doubly necessary to present the correct Marxist understanding and take the correct political stand. This is what Stalin attempted to do in his pioneering work, Marxism and the National Question. In his work, Stalin started by defining what is a nation. He defined a nation as, quote, an historically evolved, stable community of people based upon the common possession of four principal attributes, namely a common language, a common territory, a common economic life, and a common psychological makeup manifesting itself in common specific features of national culture, unquote. Stalin rejected the concept of nation based merely on religion or culture like the Jewish people. He insisted that a community should have all of the above characteristics to be called a nation. Stalin proposed that all such nations should have the right to self-determination. The right of self-determination, however, could be limited to autonomy or to linking up in a federation, as some other parties at that time were proposing. The right of self-determination had to include the right of secession, i.e. to separate and exist as an independent state. However, Stalin pointed out that how to exercise the right depended on the concrete historical circumstances at a particular point of time. It was up to the revolutionaries to try to influence the nation's decisions regarding self-determination. The decision of the Revolutionary Party would be based on whether autonomy or federation or secession or any other course would be in the best interest of the toiling masses, and particularly the proletariat. Though Stalin's presentation clarified many questions, it was still incomplete because it did not link the national question to imperialism and the questions of colonies. This was only done after Lenin's analysis of imperialism in 1916. On the basis of an analysis of imperialism, Lenin linked the question of self-determination of nations to the national liberation struggles being waged in the colonial countries. Thus it came to cover the vast majority of the world's peoples. It did not remain merely an internal state problem of a few countries which had oppressed nationalities within their boundaries. The national question became a world problem, 
a question of the liberation of the oppressed peoples of all dependent countries and colonies from the burden of imperialism. Thus, when Lenin, in 1916, presented his thesis on the socialist revolution and the right of nations to self-determination, he included all the countries of the world in his analysis. He divided the countries of the world into three main types. First, the advanced capitalist countries of Western Europe and the United States of America. These are oppressor nations who oppress other nations in the colonies and within their own country. The task of the proletariat of these ruling nations is to oppose national oppression and support the national struggle of the peoples oppressed by their imperialist ruling classes. Second, Eastern Europe and particularly Russia. The task of the proletariat in these countries is to uphold the right of nations to self-determination. In this connection, the most difficult but most important task is to merge the class struggle of the workers in the oppressing nations with the class struggle of the workers in the oppressed nations. Third, the semi-colonial countries like China, Persia, Turkey, and all the colonies, which had then a combined population accounting to a billion. With regard to these colonial countries, Lenin took the stand that socialists must not only demand the unconditional and immediate liberation of the colonies without compensation, but must also give determined support to the movement for national liberation in these countries and assist rebellion and revolutionary war against the imperialist powers that oppress them. This was the first time within the international socialist movement that such a clear stand had been taken on the national and colonial questions. There was naturally thus some debate and confusion. One such argument was that the support to self-determination and national liberation went against proletarian internationalism. It argued that socialism aimed at the merger of all nations. Lenin agreed that the aim of socialism is to abolish the division of mankind into small states, to bring nations closer together, and even to merge them. However, he felt it would be impossible to achieve this by the forced merger of nations. The merging of nations could only be achieved only by passing through the transition period of complete liberation of all oppressed nations, i.e. their freedom to secede. While presenting the party program in 1917, Lenin said, quote, We want free unification. That is why we must recognize the right to secede. Without freedom to secede, unification cannot be called free, unquote. This was the proletariat's democratic approach to the national question, which stood opposed to the bourgeoisie's policy of national oppression and annexation. Chapter 20, The Early Life and Revolutionary Contributions of Stalin Up to the 1917 Revolution In the initial years after the October Revolution, Lenin directly guided all the affairs of the state and the party. In August 1918, there was an attempt on his life by a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, which left two bullets in his body. Lenin was weakened by this attempt, but continued his rigorous work schedule, which only left him three to four hours to sleep. This overwork soon started having a serious impact on his health, particularly his brain. At the end of 1921, he started getting severe headaches and spells of vertigo, an illness which causes dizziness, which affected his work. In May 1922, he suffered a paralytic stroke that affected his right hand and leg and his power of speech. From that time on, until his death despite Lenin's many efforts to recover and get back to work, he could not play any effective role. Just before Lenin's stroke in April 1922, the Central Committee had elected Stalin as the General Secretary. Thus Stalin, who took over the leadership of the party during Lenin's illness and after his death on January 21, 1924. Stalin, meaning Man of Steel, was the most popular of many party names for Joseph Vissaronievich Zugashvili who was born on December 21, 1879 in Gori, a small town of Georgia, which was then an oppressed nationality within the Russian Empire. Today, Georgia is an independent country. His parents were poor, illiterate, descendants of serfs. His father, a few years after being released from slavery from his landlord, moved in 1875 from his village near Tiflis 
the capital of the Caucasus, a backward region of the Russian Empire, which was home to Georgia and several other oppressed nationalities. He set up a small shoemaker's shop in Gori, the equivalent of a district town. He was not able to earn much, however, and left his wife and child in Gori to take a job in a shoe factory in Tiflis, where he died in 1890. Since Stalin's father did not contribute much to the household, his mother, Ekaterina, was the one who looked after him and brought him up. She worked long hours as a washerwoman, and her earnings paid for all the expenses of the household. She had three children before Stalin, who all died soon after birth. Stalin being her only surviving son, she made all efforts to give him a proper education. Despite her poverty, she did not send her son to work as would have been normal. She sent Stalin, at the age of nine, to the local church school. She herself put in a lot of effort and learned to read and write later in old age. Ekaterina was thus a remarkable example of the grit and determination of the working masses. Stalin personally experienced poverty from his earliest childhood days. His house consisted of two extremely small rooms, which served as a shop, workshop, and home. Though Stalin was strong and hardy, he suffered an attack of smallpox at six or seven years of age that left lifelong pockmarks on his face. He also had a blood infection, which brought him near death and permanently handicapped his left arm. During his five years at the Gori School, Stalin was noted for his intelligence and his exceptional memory. It was here that Stalin came first into contact with rationalist ideas and went against religion. He started writing poetry and was influenced by Georgian literature and poetry, which had strong nationalist trends. It was during these years that Stalin was filled with strong feelings of fighting against social injustice and against the oppression of his people. Due to his poverty, it should have been impossible for Stalin to go for higher education. However, he was recommended as the, quote, best student, unquote, for a scholarship by the school headmaster and the local priest. This enabled him to continue his studies from October 1894 at the topmost institution of higher learning in the Caucasus. This was the Theological Seminary, a college for training to become a Christian priest at Tiflis. Stalin's five years at Tiflis Seminary were crucial formative years when he became a Marxist. Georgia, in Stalin's youth, was in a constant state of unrest. One of the sources of unrest was the rebellious mood of the peasantry, where the abolition of serfdom had been delayed even after it had been abolished in Russia. The other source was the constant inflow of revolutionary ideas from Russia. This was because the Tsarist government had a long history of deporting many of its rebels and bourgeois revolutionaries to the Caucasus. Later, these deportees even included Marxist worker revolutionaries like Kalinin, the future president of the Soviet Union, and Ali Luyev, a Bolshevik organizer and later Stalin's father-in-law. The Tiflis Seminary was one such center of unrest. It was the main breeding ground of the local intelligentsia, and also the main center of opposition to the Tsar. In 1893, just a year before Stalin joined the seminary, there was a strike which led to the dismissal of 87 students. The main leaders of the strike later became prominent Marxists and revolutionaries. One of the leaders, Ketchkaveli, was also from Stalin's Gori school, just three years his senior. He soon became Stalin's first political mentor. In the first year, Stalin immersed himself in reading all sorts of radical literature. This he had to do secretly, because most books of non-religious and political nature were strictly banned in the seminary. His poetry, radical and political in nature, was published for the first time under another name in a leading Georgian magazine. This was also the time when Stalin, at the young age of 15, came into contact with secret Marxist study circles. Soon Stalin came under the vigilance of the seminary authorities and was even sent to the punishment cell for reading forbidden literature. Around this time, he joined a secret debating circle in the seminary, 
This further increased his activities, which brought him into conflict with the seminary authorities more often. At the age of 18, in August 1898, he joined Mesamidasi, meaning the third group, the first group of socialists in Georgia, whose leaders later became prominent Mensheviks. Later, Stalin would say, quote, I became a Marxist because of my social position. My father was a worker in a shoe factory, and my mother was also a working woman. But also, because of the harsh intolerance and Jesuitical discipline that crushed me so mercilessly at the seminary. The atmosphere in which I lived was saturated with hatred against Tsarist oppression, unquote. Outside the seminary in the city of Tiflis, the workers during this period were on the move. These years saw the first strikes in the Caucasus. As soon as Stalin joined Mesamidasi, he was given the task of running a few workers' study circles. He did this by holding secret meetings in the workers' slums during the short amounts of free time that he got from the seminary. Meanwhile, the seminary authorities were looking for an opportunity to deal with Stalin. Finally, he was expelled from the seminary in May 1899 on grounds of not having appeared for his examinations. Expulsion from the seminary, however, did not change Stalin's revolutionary activities much. After a short stay with his mother in Gori, he was back in Tiflis, organizing and educating, while staying among the workers. In December 1899, he took up a job as a clerk with the Tiflis Geophysical Observatory. This job, though paying very little, took very little time and provided an ideal cover from the Tsarist secret police. Under this cover, Stalin continued to expand his activities. The next year, in 1900, he organized and spoke at the first May Day celebration held in the Caucasus. Due to Tsarist repression, this 500-strong meeting had to be held not in the city, but in the mountains above Tiflis. The meeting was an inspiring event which led to strikes in the factories and railways in the following months. Stalin was one of the main organizers. The next year, it was decided to hold the May Day demonstration openly in the middle of Tiflis, but the main leaders were arrested in March 1901. Stalin's room too was raided, but he managed to escape. From that day onwards until the success of the revolution in 1917, Stalin led the life of an underground professional revolutionary. His first task was to take over leadership of the organization and go ahead and organize the May Day event, despite the loss of the main leaders. This he did successfully, and despite arrests and violent attacks by the police, an historic 2,000-strong demonstration was held. These first years of Stalin and the socialist organization were also days of intense debate on economism and other issues. Within the Georgian organization, Stalin always opposed the opportunists and stood with the left wing. When Iskra started, Stalin's group was the first to become its enthusiastic supporters and distribute it in Tiflis. They soon started an illegal paper in the Georgian language in September 1901 called Brzola, meaning the struggle. Stalin was one of its principal authors, writing many articles basically upholding the Iskra line. Of particular importance was a detailed article called The Russian Social Democratic Party and Its Immediate Tasks, which came out in December 1901. In November 1901, Stalin was elected to the Social Democratic Committee of Tiflis, which was the effective leading body for the whole of the Caucasus at the time. He was immediately sent to Batum, a small town with a population of 25,000, which was a new center of the oil industry linked by an oil pipeline, to the bigger and older oil town Baku. He soon formed a town committee there under cover of a New Year's party. He also set up a secret press in the single room where he was staying. Many leaflets were published, which led soon to workers' struggles. One such struggle led to police firing on a gathering in which 15 workers were killed. All these activities were carried out despite opposition by the local socialists who later became Mensheviks. 
Finally, after just four and a half months in Batum, Stalin was arrested in April 1902 at his secret Batum committee meeting. The secret press, however, remained undiscovered. It was during the Batum period that Stalin took one of his many party names, by which he remained famous for the many years he worked in the Caucasus. He was called Koba, which meant the indomitable or unconquerable in Turkish, and was the name of the people's hero of one of the poems of Stalin's favorite writers in his youth. Stalin spent one and a half years in various jails. In jail, he maintained a strict discipline, rose early, worked hard, read much, and was one of the chief debaters in the prison commune. He was also known as a patient, sensitive, and helpful comrade. After his jail time, when no charges could be proved against him, he was still banished in November 1903 to eastern Siberia. While in prison, in March 1903, he was elected to the executive of the newly formed All-Caucasian Federation of Social Democratic Groups. Since it was very rare for an imprisoned comrade to be elected to a committee, this action gives an idea of Stalin's importance in the Caucasus organization. Stalin's banishment to Siberia coincided with the buildup of the Russo-Japanese War. He and his comrades made use of the confusion to escape almost immediately on arrival to Siberia. By the end of January 1904, he was back in Tiflis. As soon as Stalin returned, he was called upon to take a stand on the issues that had led to the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. The majority of the socialists in the Caucasus were Mensheviks, and even many of the Bolsheviks were for compromise. Despite this large majority for the Mensheviks, Stalin soon took a stand with Lenin and the Bolsheviks. He started writing in the Georgian party press in vigorous support of the Bolshevik line. In his first article, he wrote that the party is, quote, the militant group of leaders, unquote, and, quote, must be a coherent centralized organization, unquote. His strong political position brought him into contact with Lenin, who, from abroad, asked for copies of Stalin's articles. Along with his ideological battle against the Mensheviks, Stalin was, at the same time, deeply involved in the revolutionary struggles that were building up throughout the country as part of the 1905 revolution. Stalin's center was the Caucasus. Besides participating in organizing the workers' strikes, Stalin immediately started the practical implementation of the Bolshevik call for preparation for armed uprising. He became the main organizer, inspirer, and guide of the military organization in the Caucasus. An efficient and secret laboratory for explosives was also set up. Through the struggles, a number of fighting squads were set up. They participated in the numerous revolts and attacks on ruling class Gunda gangs and kept contact with peasant guerrillas. In the later period of downswing of the revolution, when the party faced a serious shortage of funds, some of the best fighting squads were used for major and daring money actions. Stalin played the principal role in building up and directing this very secret technical branch of the party. He also wrote articles during this period explaining the Marxist approach to insurrection. In December 1905, Stalin attended his first All-Russia Conference of the Bolsheviks, where it was decided to build unity with the Mensheviks. It is here that he met Lenin for the first time. He also attended the April 1906 Unity Congress, where he was the only Bolshevik out of 11 delegates from the Caucasus. The rest were all Mensheviks. He was also the only Bolshevik from the Caucasus who attended the 1907 Congress. At both Congresses, one of the points of discussion was resolutions led by the Mensheviks and Trotsky, calling for bans on armed actions and money seizures. However, the Caucasus continued to be the main center for such actions, with an estimate of 1,150 such actions taking place there between 1905 to 1908. Towards the end of 1907, Stalin was elected to the Baku Committee. 
This oil town of 50,000 workers had workers of various nationalities and religions facing severe exploitation. Stalin soon united the workers and developed a lone center of struggle during the dark period of the Stolypin reaction. Adopting a new identity, he set up residence and a secret printing press in the Muslim part of the city. In this period, Stalin started writing for the first time in Russian. In 1908, Stalin was arrested, but continued to write articles and guide party activities from inside the jail. In 1909, he was again banished, but again escaped within four months. Stalin returned via St. Petersburg and found the disorganized state of the party headquarters in the capital. On returning to Baku, he wrote a strong description of the state of affairs and called for an all-Russia paper published from Russia. He also later called for the practical directing center to be transferred to Russia. After many months of intensive work in Baku and articles for the party organ abroad, Stalin was again arrested in March 1910. After some months in jail, he was again banished to Siberia, where he remained until June 1911. This time being forbidden to return to the Caucasus or any big city, he settled in a town near St. Petersburg in Moscow. He was, however, again arrested within two months. After a few months in the jail, he was again released, but had to live outside the big cities. During this period, the first Bolshevik Central Committee, elected by the January 1912 Bolshevik Conference, nominated Stalin onto the committee in its very first meeting. One of Stalin's first tasks after becoming a Central Committee member was to publish the first issue of the Bolshevik daily paper, Pravda. He was, however, almost immediately arrested again. After three months in prison and two months banishment in Siberia, he escaped again. He reached St. Petersburg in time to lead the campaign for the elections to the Duma. Though the Bolsheviks won only six seats, it represented 80% of the industrial workers. At the end of 1912 and the beginning of 1913, Stalin spent a few weeks abroad where he met and had detailed discussions with Lenin and other comrades. It was during this period that he wrote his famous theoretical book on the national question. He returned to St. Petersburg in February 1913, but was betrayed within a week by another member of the Central Committee, Malinovsky, an agent of the Tsar's secret police. This agent also betrayed another Central Committee member, Sverdlov. But Stalin and Sverdlov were banished to the remotest parts of Siberia, from where escape was the most difficult. Lenin made elaborate plans to arrange for their escape, but the escape plans themselves were made through the same secret agent. Rather than arrange escape, this agent only arranged for a closer watch to be kept on the Central Committee members. Thus Stalin was forced to remain this time in exile for four long years until the February bourgeois revolution of 1917 resulted in the overthrow of the Tsarish regime. It was then that he was allowed to return to St. Petersburg, where he arrived on 12th March 1917. From then until Lenin's arrival in April, he led the party center. Looking back on Stalin's political life of around 20 years before the revolution, it stands out as a model of courage, self-sacrifice, dedication, and devotion to the cause of revolution. Besides the long years in prison and banishment, Stalin almost always lived in the underground in close and living contact with the masses. With such a difficult life of total dedication, there was hardly any time for Stalin to have much of a, quote, private life, unquote. His first marriage was in his youth, to Ekaterina Svodnys, the sister of one of his socialist comrades at the Tiflis Seminary. They had one son, who after Ekaterina's death during the 1905 revolution, was brought up by her parents. Stalin's second marriage was to Nadzda Alyuyeva, the daughter of one of Stalin's close worker comrades. He had close links with the family, and they always sent parcels of food, clothing, and books during his banishment days. This second marriage, however, only took place when they were assigned to Tsaritsyn, 
later named Stalingrad, during the Civil War after the October Revolution. Chapter 21, Socialist Construction, The Russian Experience Around the time of the October Revolution, there were two types of so-called Marxist views with regards to building socialism. One was the view represented by the Mensheviks and others like them. These people were opposed to advancing to the socialist revolution and wanted power to remain in the hands of the bourgeoisie. Their argument was that since capitalism had not advanced sufficiently and concentrated the means of production, particularly in agriculture, the time was not appropriate for the proletariat to capture power. They proposed that the proletariat should wait for some time until capitalism had advanced to some extent under the rule of the bourgeoisie. This would create the conditions for the nationalization of all the means of production and for the construction of socialism. The Mensheviks were completely against the proletariat seizing power and advancing with a program of socialist construction. The other view was represented by a group within the Bolshevik party called, quote, left, unquote, communists. Their stand was that power should be captured and all the means of production immediately nationalized, even by means of seizing the property of the small and middle peasants and other producers. These, quote, left-unquote communists thus wanted to take an antagonistic stand against the peasantry and thus drive away the main ally of the revolution. Lenin, in a struggle against these two trends, drew up the correct path for socialist construction. The main aspects of Lenin's path of socialist construction can be outlined as follows. A. The proletariat should not lose the chance but make full use of the favorable conditions to seize power. Waiting will only mean that capitalism will go ahead and ruin millions of small and medium individual producers. B. The means of production and industry should be confiscated and converted into public property. C. The small and medium individual producers should gradually be united in producers' cooperatives, i.e. in large agricultural enterprises and collective farms. D. Industry should be developed to the utmost, and the collective farm should be developed on the modern technical basis of large-scale production. The property of the collective farm should not be confiscated, but, on the contrary, they should be generously supplied with first-class tractors and other machines. E. Exchange through purchase and sale, i.e. commodity production, should be preserved for a certain period, because the peasants would not accept any other form of economic ties between town and country. However, trade should only be through Soviet trade, between the state, cooperative, and collective farm. This should be developed to the fullest and capitalists of all types and descriptions should be ousted from trading activity. Of these five points, the first, the seizure of power and the nationalization of big industry, were completed within the first few months. However, the further steps in the process of socialist construction could not be taken up immediately because of the extremely difficult conditions of all-sided enemy attacks faced by the first proletarian state. Due to the civil war, the very survival of this state was in question. In order to face this all-round attack, the party had to mobilize the whole country to fight the enemy. A set of emergency measures called, quote, war communism, unquote, was introduced. Under war communism, the Soviet government took control of middle and small industries. In addition to large-scale industry, it introduced a state monopoly of the grain trade and prohibited private trading in grain. It established the surplus appropriation system, under which all surplus produce of the peasants had to be handed over to the state at fixed prices. And finally, it introduced universal labor services for all classes, making physical labor compulsory for the bourgeoisie, thus releasing workers required for more important responsibilities at the front. This policy of war communism was, however, of a temporary nature to fulfill the needs of the war. 
It helped mobilize the whole people for the war and resulted in the defeat of all the foreign interventionists and domestic reactionaries by the end of 1920, and the preservation of the independence and freedom of the new Soviet Republic. From 1921, there was another turn in the situation in Russia. After completing victory in the Civil War, the task had to shift to the peaceful work of the economic restoration. For this, a policy shift was made from war communism to the new economic policy, NEP. According to this, the compulsory surplus appropriation from the peasants was discontinued, private trade was restarted, and private manufacturers were allowed to start small businesses. This was necessary because the war communism measures had gone too far ahead and were resented by certain sections of the mass base of the party, particularly the peasantry. However, the Trotskyites strongly opposed the NEP as nothing but a retreat. Lenin, at the 10th Congress of the Party in March 1921, countered the Trotskyites and convinced the Congress of the policy change, which was then adopted. He further gave theoretical substantiation of the correctness of the NEP in his report on the tactics of the Russian Communist Party, presented before the 3rd Congress of the Communist International in July 1921. The NEP continued until the end of 1925 when the 14th Party Congress took the decision to move on to the next phase of socialist construction, that of socialist industrialization. Socialist industrialization. The Soviet Union was at that time still a relatively backward agrarian country, with two-thirds of its total production coming from agriculture and only one-third from industry. Additionally, as the first socialist state, the question of being economically independent of imperialism was of central importance. Therefore, the path of socialist construction had to first concentrate on socialist industrialization. In Stalin's words, quote, the conversion of our country from an agrarian into an industrial country able to produce the machinery it needs by its own efforts, that is the essence, the basis of our general line, unquote. Thus, the main focus was on heavy industry, which would produce machines for other industries and for agriculture. This policy succeeded in building a strong industrial base independent of imperialism. It also enabled the defense of the socialist base in World War II. Also, industry expanded at a pace several times faster than the most advanced imperialist countries, thus proving the superiority of the socialist system. The principal factor in this was the wholehearted participation in increasing production by the whole working class. At a time when the whole capitalist world was reeling under a very severe economic crisis, socialist industry was marching ahead without any problems whatsoever. However, due to special emphasis on priority development of heavy industry, agriculture was neglected in the plans. Thus, in the period when industrial production went up by over nine times, grain production did not even go up by one-fifth. This showed that the growth of agriculture was very low as compared to industry. This was also the case with an industry with heavy industry growing at a much faster speed than light industry. Later, Mao, in his critique of Soviet economics, criticized this emphasis and called for simultaneous promotion of both industry as well as agriculture. Within industry, he called for the development of both light and heavy industry at the same time. Collectivization of agriculture. The first step in this process was taken in the NEP restoration period, with the formation of the first cooperatives among small and medium peasants. However, due to the resistance of the kulaks, rich farmers, there was not much progress. Also, the kulaks had taken a position of active opposition and sabotage of the socialist construction process. They refused to sell their grain surpluses to the Soviet state. They resorted to terrorism against the collective farmers, against party workers and government officials in the countryside, and burned down collective farms and state granaries. 
1927, due to this sabotage, the marketed share of the harvest was only 37% of the pre-war figure. Thus, the party, in that year, made the decision to launch an offensive to break the resistance of the Kulaks. Relying on the poor peasants and allying with the middle peasants, the party was able to achieve success in grain purchasing and advance the collectivization process. However, the major advance came at the end of 1929. Prior to 1929, the Soviet government had pursued a policy of restricting the kulaks. The effect of this policy was to arrest the growth of the kulak class, some sections of which, unable to withstand the pressure of these restrictions, were forced out of business and ruined. But this policy did not destroy the economic foundations of the kulaks as a class, nor did it tend to eliminate them. This policy was essential up to a certain time, that is, as long as the collective farms and state farms were still weak and unable to replace the kulaks in the production of grain. At the end of 1929, with the growth of the collective farms and the state farms, the Soviet government turned sharply from this policy to the policy of eliminating the kulaks, of destroying them as a class. It withdrew the laws on the renting of land and the hiring of labor, thus depriving the kulaks both of land and of hired laborers. It lifted the ban on the confiscation of the kulaks' property. It permitted the peasants to confiscate cattle, machines, and other farm property from the kulaks for the benefit of the collective farms. The kulaks thus lost all their means of production. They were expropriated just as the capitalists had been expropriated in the sphere of the industry in 1918. The difference, however, was that the kulaks' means of production did not pass into the hands of the state, but into the hands of the peasants united in the collective farms. A step-by-step plan was adopted for the implementation of this policy. Depending on the conditions in various regions, different rates of collectivization were established and the targeted year for completion of the collectivization was fixed. The production of tractors, harvesters, and other agricultural machinery was increased by many times. State loans to collective farms were doubled in the first year. 25,000 class-conscious industrial workers were selected and sent to the rural areas to help implement this plan. The process of collectivization, despite some errors, advanced rapidly towards success. By 1934, 90% of the total crop area of the country had been brought under socialist agriculture, i.e. state farms or collective farms. The whole process of the collectivization of agriculture was nothing less than a revolution in which the proletariat had allied with the poor and middle peasants to break hold of the kulaks. This revolution, in one blow, solved three fundamental problems of socialist construction. A. It eliminated the most numerous class of exploiters in the country, the kulak class, the mainstay of capitalist restoration. B. It transferred the most numerous laboring class in the country, the peasant class, from the path of individual farming, which breeds capitalism, to the path of cooperative, collective socialist farming. C. It furnished the Soviet regime with a socialist base in agriculture, the most extensive and vitally necessary, yet least developed, branch of national economy. With the victory of the collectivization movement, the party announced the victory of socialism. In January 1933, Stalin announced that, quote, the victory of socialism in all branches of the national economy had abolished the exploitation of man by man, unquote. In January 1934, the 17th Party Congress report declared that, quote, the socialist form of social and economic structure now holds undivided sway and is the sole commanding force in the whole national economy, unquote. The absence of any antagonistic classes was later repeatedly stressed while presenting the Constitution in 1936 and in later political reports. Errors in Russian Experience The Russian experience in socialist construction was of central importance to the international proletariat, and particularly to all countries where the proletariat seized power. 
Stalin, in his work Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR, tried to theorize regarding the process of socialist construction and the economic laws of socialism. He, however, did not make a self-critical analysis of the Russian experience. Later, Mao made an analysis of the Russian experience and pointed certain errors in the practice, as well as Stalin's formulations. Mao pointed out the following principal errors in the Russian experience. 1. Not giving due importance to the contradiction between the relations of production and the productive forces. This was reflected in the prolonged coexistence of two types of ownership. On the one hand, ownership of the whole people, as represented in the nationalized industries and the state farms, and on the other hand, ownership by the collectives. Mao felt that prolonged coexistence of ownership by the whole people with ownership by the collectives was bound to become less and less adaptable to the development of the productive forces. Essentially, a way had to be found to make the transition from collective to public ownership. 2. Not giving importance to mass line during socialist construction. Mao pointed out that in the earlier period mass line was adopted, but afterwards, the Soviet party became less reliant on the masses. The things emphasized were technology and technical cadres rather than politics and the masses. 3. Neglecting the class struggle. After the success of the collectivization process, not enough importance was given to continuing the class struggle. 4. Imbalance in the relationship between heavy industry on the one side and light industry and agriculture on the other. 5. Mistrust of the peasants. Mao criticized the Russian policy for not giving due importance to the peasantry. Besides drawing these lessons from Stalin and the Russian experience, Mao learned from the Chinese experience. He thus made an attempt to develop the Marxist theory of socialist construction. Chapter 22, The Fight Against Trotskyism and Other Opportunist Trends Throughout the period of the Russian Revolution, and even after the seizure of power, the Bolshevik line had to wage struggles against various opportunist lines. One of the most important of these anti-Marxist trends was Trotskyism, named after its originator Leon Trotsky. Trotsky was a member of the RSDLP, who at the time of the split between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks sided with the Mensheviks. Later, he tried to form a bloc separate from both the Bolshevik and Menshevik trends, and even presented himself as the, quote, centrist, unquote, who would unite the two groups. After the success of the February Revolution, he self-criticized for his heirs and was admitted into the Bolshevik party and taken into the Central Committee. After the October Revolution, he was Commissar of Foreign Affairs, 1917 through 1918, and Commissar of Military and Naval Affairs, 1918 through 1924 a post from which he was removed for his opportunist and factional activities. In the period of socialist construction in particular, Trotskyism played a very disruptive and factional role. Stalin led the party in a firm struggle against Trotskyist opportunism. The three specific features of Trotskyism, which were outlined by Stalin in his speech on Trotskyism or Leninism, are 1. The theory of permanent revolution. According to this theory, Trotsky proposed that the proletariat should quickly move from the bourgeois democratic stage to the socialist stage of the revolution without the help of the peasantry. He thus was opposed to any talk of dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry. He rejected the role of the peasantry, the strongest ally of the proletariat. This theory, which looks very, quote, left, unquote, actually in essence meant the betrayal of the revolution. Because without the peasantry, there was no hope of success for the proletariat, and the revolution was bound to end in failure. Another aspect of this theory was that revolution in the advanced capitalist countries was necessary for the building of socialism. His theory of permanent revolution was also a theory of world revolution, 
which proposed that though revolution would start on a national basis, the revolutionaries should immediately work to spread it in other countries. Again, this proposal appears very, quote, left, unquote, but actually meant a very defeatist understanding that opposed the possibility of building socialism in one country. Lenin opposed this anti-Marxist theory as soon as it appeared in the period immediately following the 1905 revolution, when Trotsky was not a part of the Bolshevik trend. However, it appeared in various ways and had to be fought at various points after the October Revolution, when Trotsky had joined the Bolshevik party and become one of its leading members. The first instance was immediately after the revolution, during the negotiations for peace with Germany. Trotsky, on the basis of his theory, wanted war to continue as he felt that it would help the revolutionary situation in Germany, and that the success of the revolution in Germany, an advanced capitalist country, was more important than the consolidation of the Russian Revolution. Lenin and Stalin forcefully opposed this argument, but a special 7th Congress had to be held to discuss and defeat this concept. Another example of this theory was Trotsky's fight against the introduction of the NEP, New Economic Policy. As an opponent of the alliance with the peasantry, he felt that the NEP was nothing but a retreat. He did not accept the need to preserve this alliance and prepare the ground for socialist construction. Again, this concept had to be fought and was defeated at the 10th Party Congress. A third example is at the time the NEP turned to socialist industrialization. At that time, Trotsky united with other elements to propose that it was not possible to build socialism in one country. This proposal, based on Trotsky's quote, permanent revolution, unquote, and quote, world revolution, unquote, concept, would have meant a defeatist and opportunist approach towards socialist construction, which would have based the success of socialism in Russia on the success of revolution in the developed capitalist countries. Stalin united the party against this concept at the 14th Party Congress in 1925. Two, the second feature of Trotskyism is its opposition to Bolshevik party principles. Trotsky's opposition to democratic centralism and the concept of the Leninist party was apparent from the very beginning in his support to the Mensheviks during the split with the Bolsheviks. Even later in 1912, he united all the opportunist trends like the liquidators and recallists to form a faction called the August Bloc. While pretending to be a, quote, centrist, unquote, who was going to unite the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, Trotsky actually totally supported the Mensheviks and worked jointly with them. Lenin, supported by Stalin and others, opposed and fought against this opportunist bloc. In 1923, when Lenin was grievously ill, Trotsky took advantage of the gap in leadership to demand the withdrawal of all norms of democratic centralism in the party. He united all varied opposition elements to formulate a declaration of the 46 oppositionists, which demanded freedom of factions and groups in the Communist Party. This factionalist demand was also defeated. However, Trotsky's demand for, quote, freedom, unquote, and, quote, democracy, unquote, was totally opportunist and depended on whether he was in a position of decision-making or not. Thus, when he was at the center of decision-making in 1920, Trotsky proposed the, quote, militarization, unquote, of the trade unions and subjecting them to discipline of the army. He opposed democracy being extended to the trade unions and the election of trade union bodies. Lenin, Stalin, and other comrades led the struggle against this concept and asserted that trade units should base all their activities on methods of persuasion. Three, the third feature of Trotskyism was its repeated false propaganda against the Bolshevik leadership. In the initial period, Trotsky concentrated all his attacks on Lenin. In the later period, Stalin became the focus of all manner of defamation. After Trotsky could not succeed in winning over the party to his side in open debate, he started secret manipulations. 
1926, he started a secret faction with an illegal press and secret propaganda. This was discovered, and he was finally expelled from the party. He moved abroad, but continued to maintain links with other factionalists within the party. In 1929, another group, the Right Opposition, was formed under the leadership of Bukharin, a Politburo member, which opposed the fight against the Kulaks and the advancement of the process of collectivization of agriculture. This line, too, was defeated. In the 1930s, however, Trotskyism ceased to be a political trend within the working class. It gave up attempts at open propagation of its anti-Marxist line, but shifted to secret planning and maneuvering. Trotsky and the top Trotskyists in the Soviet Union developed links with foreign intelligence services and started working on plans to assassinate leading elements in the party and take over the leadership of the party. It was as a part of this plan that Comrade Kirov, at that time second after Stalin and the party leadership, was murdered in 1934. In the investigations that followed, the main conspirators, many of whom were Central Committee members, were discovered. Open trials were held where they admitted their crimes. Many were sentenced to death and executed.